We're driving in rural Chiang Mai. We stop to eat som tam at one of those cheap pit stop places along the main road. The exterior of the restaurant is unremarkable. We order as we walk in. Three aunties who run the place get up. As we take our seats, I notice the wall. It's one of the richest tapestries I've ever seen. Twenty meters of posters stuck to old teak dedicated almost entirely to former Prime Minister Ying Lak Shinawat, intercut with her brother, former Prime Minister Taksin Shinawat. Both were ousted by coups. Accompanying the siblings are classic rock posters, nude big-breasted ladies, and the occasional reference to Thai political history. A political science professor could teach a semester on this wall alone. All the posters are affixed to the wall with blue tack. All are faded. At the very top sits an image of the Lord Buddha. Framed are a cluster of photographs of the ladies with Yingluck. As one of the aunties puts down our drinks, I comment, "Wow, you guys really love Yingluck." Khapom. Yes, sir. She replies. Susuna. Keep on fighting. I say with a wink. I'm sympathetic to these kind of red shirts. She smiles. I don't ask about the big-breasted nude ladies. On closer inspection, they're all from one issue of a Japanese nudie magazine. Maybe that was an uncle's contribution. Joining Yingluck and the other women on the wall is a famous picture from the massacre at Tamasat. Above it, it reads in English, "We lose to win." Two posters are from Black May 1992, a series of mass anti-coup protests in Bangkok, in which hundreds were killed at Ratchaprasong. Ironically, the leader of that movement, a former military officer, is known to be involved with the massacre at Tamasat and a staunch hardliner against Taksin. Such are the contradictions. There are some posters from the 2010 red shirt protests in Bangkok. Then hundreds of thousands came down to the capital from Isan and the upcountry areas to occupy central Bangkok and fight the state mechanisms that had ousted Taksin's government. The protests ended bloodily when the demonstrators were violently evicted by the military, leaving over 100 dead. The wall is a testament to the Shinawats and popular uprisings in Thailand. Like all political mass mobilizations, they are rife with contradictions. Polemics aside, they live together in the auntie's shop. At this moment in time, Chiang Mai is Taksin country. The Shinawat family can trace their lineage back to the old royals of Lan Na. Taksin himself rose through Chiang Mai city, first in the police department, then in the private telecoms industry. During his election campaign, he spoke Kamuang to the locals, signaling that he wasn't Bangkok's man. That he was proudly from the upcountry, a first in Thai prime ministerial politics. It can sometimes seem unintelligible that an elite billionaire family like the Shinawats could become champions of the rural poor. To understand it, we have to contextualize it in pragmatic Shinawatian terms. Taksin and his Thai Rak Thai Party simply made the enterprising decision to engage with that rural poor as an electoral base. This demographic had been largely overlooked as a conscious base by the elites in Bangkok that had governed the country since its founding. 
Tyrak Tire came to power off of the back of the Tom Young Gung market crash, the worst recession in a lifetime. Their platform was to decentralize decision making and capital flow to the semi periphery areas, places like Lampang in the north, Rai Et in Isan, and Pichit in the central plains. Regions which had for centuries been stripped of autonomy, their governance appointed by Bangkok. While the capital city had a modern Skytrain in 1999, these regions still had no bus services. Capital, both financial and human, was sucked into Bangkok, desolating much of the rest of the country. Through shrewd economic planning, Tyrak Thai was able to rapidly reinvigorate the Thai economy from complete collapse to becoming one of the fastest growing and most stable economies in the region. Taksin's approach combined left-wing-inspired social democratic welfare programs with neoliberal privatization, while pursuing laxer international trade barriers, sometimes even within the same policy. For example, his most celebrated policy today is the 30 baht healthcare system, sometimes inaccurately referred to as universal healthcare. It is essentially universal healthcare, but with a classic Taksin capitalist twist whereby patients have to pay just 30 baht each time they visit the hospital or doctors, be it for a mild fever or a major operation. This is classic taxonomics, to provide easy and affordable access to a social program, but at a cost, albeit a very low one. Many of the policies were also highly localized, allowing local municipalities or villages to choose how to spend microcredit grants with little to no interest rates. However, these certainly weren't handouts. The local municipalities were encouraged to spend the money on programs that would see a return in investments. Many chose to expand school bus routes, invest in local agriculture, or refurbish marketplaces, programs that would generate revenue in the long run. This gave those regions the agency they had gone without for so long, much to the chagrin of the Bangkok elite. The aunties at the Som Tham restaurant fit perfectly into the demographic. Rural, borderline middle working class, northern, and importantly, small business owners. We make a little small talk. They're curious about me. Two aunties engage. The one who made our Som Tham doesn't. Something's off about her. New customers come into the restaurant wearing well-ironed shirts. I see their Bangkok license plate and hear it in their accents. I go up to the counter to pay. Auntie, Tam Yang Dai Ba. Did you go and fight in Bangkok? She looks at the Bangkokians, leans in closely, lowers her voice, and speaks in Kamuang. We did, but only my big sister was there at the end, she said, referring to the massacre, gesturing to the silent auntie. Mm. I tell her. From the wall, all of the Yinglaks smile at us proudly. A friend of mine went back to her hometown of Pizza Nulok for a few months. I went to visit for a week or so. Her parents live about 30 minutes out of town, amongst the rice fields. The mornings are fresh and cold, the midday stiflingly hot. At this point, I've been in Thailand for around two years, 
but this is my first real taste of mid-country daily life. The class divide in the area is stark. Land and business owners live in new-build McMansions on perfect right angles cut into the rice paddies, while their workers live in wooden houses, a few tightly packed together in the hamlets that run along the main roads. We're staying in the McMansion. My friend's stepdad, Lek, is a die-hard red shirt. You could call him a Carabao guy. He's quiet. He wears only black tees with work jeans, dark sunglasses, and sports a goatee. He carries himself with confidence. The family business is highly suspect. I think they're loan sharks. My friend doesn't know much about the goings-on. Like, they say we help people build homes when the bank won't loan them money, she says. One day, Lek pulls into the driveway in a glistening new 4 before Payment in lieu of cash, I'm told. Maybe they're the local mafia, or at least part of it preying off of the aspirational wannabe middle class. My friend tells me her family were that aspirational wannabe middle class themselves before taxin. Late one night, I get out of bed to go smoke. I can't find a lighter anywhere. I open up a desk drawer and find a 9mm pistol. I grab the lighter next to it. My friend was overdue to go and visit some extended family in nearby Petrobun. So we decided to make a trip of it and go up to Putabur, a hilltop village known for its spectacular views. We arrive in time for dinner. The natural area around the village is just stunning. While the streets are cluttered with tacky tourist hotels, catering mostly to Bangkokians who make the long drive up country for some much needed fresh air. It was once a remote ethnic Hmong village when a few enterprising locals opened camping spots, which then became tourist attractions. The Hmong had never legally owned the land that they had lived on for generations, allowing for the ties from the lowlands to come in and buy it up from the state, displacing the locals and turning the village into a tourist trap. A friend of her family has a small resort there, five cheap rooms. We join him for dinner and drinks, another red-shirt uncle, he drinks copiously, winding himself up as he goes. When you get back to the city, tell those fuckers that we still want tax in back. And also, tell them to get fucked. <laughs> the leadership of the red shirts were in the process of being quietly dismantled at that point since the coup two years prior. Yet loyalists and anger were still abound. In the case of both Lek and that uncle, the irony of championing the red shirts is apparent. Both are rent-seeking scourges on the locals, loan sharking and land grabbing. Of course, the majority of the locals are likely red shirts too. They all consider themselves champions of rural working class people. Class divides and predation notwithstanding. We stay up late drinking and smoking. She tells me the story of the old comrade walking through the village. I have a friend from Singbury in the Midlands. Her uncle died, so she went home for the funeral. They weren't that close, and she found the events rather boring. She was messaging me the whole trip. Her uncle had moved out of Singbury City into the rural area. She was staying at her older cousin's home nearby. The family are extremely poor. Another cousin had caught a white egret in a bird net. She begged him not to kill it. He refused and grilled the carcass. 
she cried. The next day, she sends me a series of pictures from the family photo albums. The photos are taken on a film camera with a bright flash. They show smiling women in red bandanas, busted up tanks covered in graffiti, and dead bodies draped in the Thai flag, close-ups of their blooded faces. Another picture shows a membership card. It's red. It has a passport-style photo and a membership number. It reads, The United Front for Democracy Against Dictatorship is red throughout the land, in both Thai and in English. The cousin's picture looks blankly back at me via my phone screen. She tells me he's tired of politics now. In the end, all of that fight was for nothing, he says. In his wardrobe, he has a belt. The buckle is crafted out of a piece of metal he stole from a Bangkok tank. That's pretty fucking cool, I tell her. She agrees. There's a book called Buffalo's Dream of Being Human by Tepwood Boatun. The story is of a country buffalo, a term that is often used as a slur for the rural poor. The buffalo moves to Bangkok for work. However, once he's tired and exhausted from selling his labor in the city, he amasses in protest against the oppressive state with his fellow buffalo comrades, with a friendly monkey as their leader. The buffaloes are defeated by the humans who run the city. They vanish back into the city, going back to work. I remember walking around Wat Wararun and Ratchaprasong in central Bangkok, where the red shirts were massacred. Motorbike taxi drivers hang outside, smoking cigarettes in their orange vests, dozing on their bikes. The drivers were well regarded for their role in aiding the protests. I wonder how many of them were here when the luxury boulevards were turned into killing fields ten years ago. Imprinted in their memories, smiling women in red bandanas, busted up tanks covered in graffiti, dead bodies draped in the Thai flags, close-ups of their bloodied faces. Even if these drivers weren't there, memories haunt the spaces and communities like spectres. The memory of the slaughtered holy men 100 years ago lives on in the mind of the Ubon locals. The ghost of the young woman comrade still wandering the hills of Pupan looking for a way out to Bangkok. My friend in Singbury sends me a picture of the bird net with a hole cut in it where the egret was foolish enough to fly. I have a friend in northern Isan. He lives in the town of some unheard of Amper near the Lao border. It's rainy season. His family home is flooding daily. The shallow concrete foundations are decaying. Groundwater seeps in. The walls are beginning to slope, causing the roof to be off balance. Water leaks down the walls, compounding the problem. They built the house in the golden age of Taksin, when the economy was booming. Cash was flowing, and the working class had an aspirational glint in their eyes and a bit of cash in their pocket. Post-coup, there was an economic vacuum left after Taksin's policies were rolled back. A recession set in, though it was predominantly felt in the semi-periphery areas that Tairaktai had invested in so heavily. The small-time debts of families like my friends ballooned when they were unable to make repayments. 
Many had no choice than to turn to semi-illegal loan sharks, like my other friend's family in Pisanulok. What was once a debt of around 50,000 baht in 2006 is now in the hundreds of thousands, a noose tied around the necks of the working class, though they can't pull away the stool, as the debt will be passed on to the next generation. Many of the decaying homes, like my friends, are now far less valuable than the debt they've incurred. 21st century indentured servitude in full effect. For most families, the responsibility falls on the next generation. There's no chance that parents who took out the loans could raise the capital to pay it back. The children of the Taksin era now reach the age where they can sell their labour and inherit the noose. Another friend, also from rural Isan, has to go home to take out a personal loan. Her brother's been busted for selling Yaba. He's recently completed his military conscription, 22 years old with a baby on the way. The cost of sparing him a decade in jail is 40,000 baht. I don't ask whether it's a fine or a bribe. It doesn't matter. Her mum tried to take out a loan, but her credit is too bad. She's already in debt. My friend walks into a local SCB and walks out with 40,000 baht and a half-decade-long repayment scheme. A few months later, his baby is born, named Pupan after the mountain where Jit was killed. The baby was born into a family racked by generational debt. Just a day old, the noose awaits him in the future. One evening, at dinner with friends, the topic of prison comes up. We share stories of family members and friends who have been inside. One friend recounts how his grandmother went to jail when he was a kid. Shit, your grandma? Shit, was a collective response. He tells us how we would go visit her, how it felt to go through the prison bureaucracy and security just to see this gentle old woman who used to be ubiquitous in the family home. Grandma, like many others of the era, was caught up in Taksin's anti-drugs program. As is typical after any financial crash, after Tom Yang Gung, drug possession and use increased. One of Taksin's key policies was to go hard on both dealers and users. Police and the courts were given sweeping powers and extrajudicial oversight to clean up the country, one user at a time. Cops were known to act as judge, jury and executioner, as extrajudicial killings were widely reported. Apparently, it was also a good time for those wanting to settle local grievances. Plant a bag of meth in someone's house and an anonymous tip-off would have the police crashing through their door within hours. This is what my friend claims to have happened to his grandmother. Those who weren't killed on sight were thrown into the already overcrowded prisons and gulags. There, many died. Many more were traumatised for life. Ironically, going in clean and coming out an addict. Today, while the intensity of the drug raids have slowed, the policies largely remain, as do the juristic and carceral infrastructure. Thailand has the world's fourth highest incarceration rate and the first highest for women. One friend spent two years in a women's prison for Les Majestés charges. Inside, she had to call the guards, Mare, Mother, and speak in a soft, ladylike voice at all times. 
She said most of the women who were inside were there because of love, or more specifically, their love for a man. Maybe their boyfriend asked them to carry some drugs and they took the hit. Maybe they caught their husband cheating and killed the other woman. Time and time again, she said, it was because of those men in their lives. We're driving on the well-worn roads out of Bangkok, towards the popular tourist hotspot of Khao Yai National Park, and then onwards to Korat. Bangkok and the surrounding metro area fades away behind us. Countless tons of concrete have been poured into the swamp that once existed there. We reach Salapuri, the midpoint of the drive. A brutal scene unfolds. The masses of suburbs blurring by the window transform into something yet more hideous. Cement factories, processing plants, and heavy machinery line the roads. As the distant mountains grow closer, the scars on their crests become visible. Green peaks replaced by grey mines. Their flanks flayed off, rendered a barren wasteland of rock and soil. It reminds me of my scraped knees and elbows from when I was a child. How anyone making the trip to enjoy the Khao Yai nature reserve is not disgusted by this abomination is beyond me. But it is necessary. Bangkok's ravenous appetite for concrete must be met as its suburbs sprawl ever wider, eventually and ironically reaching their material source at Salapuri. The mountains are torn apart, deconstructed to their base elements, only to be resurrected as 20,000 baht per month condos on Sukhumvit. The hill's former inhabitants, the plants, the animals, birds, fungi and insects, the delicate and intricately balanced system of life has been eviscerated. I have a friend from Salapuri. He's a doctor who now lives in the south. His parents, also born there, speak what sounds like an archaic form of Lao. They're descendants of Lao migrants, or maybe slaves, who knows, he tells me. His mum's family can trace their lineage back to prayer. His father's isn't sure. Most of the older people in the neighbourhood also speak Lao, despite being hundreds of miles from what was once their native land. All are descendants of coercive migration of some kind or another, be they literal slaves, or supposedly free people seeking to sell their labour. Salapuri was one of the region's first industrial experiments. The mountain stone makes for quality concrete, for Bangkok's insatiable appetite. The process of scraping the top off of a mountain is known as removing the overburden. The aforementioned burdensome former inhabitants, those plants, insects and animals, etc. On a windy day, the district is coated by a layer of dust. Siam Cement Group, the second largest company in Thailand, thanks the good people of Salapuri for their sacrifice. The Lao people of the area and their cousins in Isan can trace their subjugation at the hands of Bangkok back to the 1820s, when then Siam tried its hand at mass population transfers. The rebellious vassal kingdom of Vientiane, today Lao, was put to the sword. Its inhabitants forced down country into Isan and the lowlands of the Thai central plains. 
the Isan region, or the Korat Plateau, was a vast expanse of unproductive lands, also in the eyes of Bangkok. It was swampy in the wet season and arid in the dry season, prone to flooding and difficult to farm. Those Lao people were pressed into corvée labour, putting it to productive use, dredging canals, building levees and raising embankments. Their bodies turned into machines, their arms tattooed with the names of the local lords who owned them. It was here that the holy Pibun rebels would rise and be crushed in the 19th century, the communists in the 20th and the red shirts in the 21st. Each century, when the slaves revolted, Bangkok swiftly dispatched its cannons, its militias and its snipers, sending them back to the swamp to wait for the next time. There's a reason that there are Lao people and concrete mines in Salapuri. The same reason that there's a special economic zone in Mae Sot and mass industry in eastern Thailand. Vulnerable people, captured by capital, forced into labour extraction. They lay the foundations for that industry. Like the balaclava-clad workers laying the groundwork for the fish trap of Mae Sot. These industries are built around the human and natural resources they seek to extract. Another time, I'm in Vientiane, at the Nong Kai border bridge between Thailand and Laos. It runs over the same Mekong River that the Siamese invaders crossed 200 years ago, returning with jewels and slaves. I'm returning with some Lao cigarettes and a new stamp in my passport. We depart the Republic, heading into Isan. At the Kingdom's gate, I see a battalion of orange-shirted men and women in a long line, maybe 200 of them. Several large buses wait idly by. We sigh and take our place at the back of the queue. On closer inspection, the battalion's orange shirts are emblazoned with the branding of a Thai construction company. An immigration official immediately spots us two Farang and gestures us to the front of the line, not wanting us to get caught up in the bureaucracy of today's population transfer. In Bangkok, I take the BTS to Paknam. At that time, one of the furthest reaches of air-conditioned public transport in the metropole the periphery of cold air. From the window, we spot some of the monuments to Thai excellence. At the Erawan Museum, a giant three-headed elephant peers into the carriage. At the Royal Navy Academy and Museum, armoured personnel carriers and seaplanes rest on the lawn. A submarine head pokes its way out of the perfectly maintained grass. A cannon points directly at our train. I'm heading to the site of the Thai resistance to imperialism, a place where, centuries ago, Bangkok was crushed by gunship diplomacy. First, though, a trip to Paknam wet market to the crowded pier overlooking the shipping lanes at the heart of the Chao Phya River, the economic gateway to Bangkok. We board our dinky wooden ship to cross to the other bank. The water is filthy. Huge cargo giants glide past us. Shipping containers stack stories high, filled with precious commodities, some raw materials from the upcountry, some consumer goods assembled by three generations of a Cambodian family or a captured migrant from Burma. 
brought down from those tactically placed industrial hubs, packed and shipped out to the international market. Their tremendous wake rocks our measly vessel. We disembark on the opposite bank and make the short walk to Pi Sua Samut Naval Fortress, where Siam once briefly battled the French Navy. A century and a half ago, both the British and the French were delicately praying at the Kingdom of Siam, exploring different routes for formal colonization. In the mid-1800s, Britain had sent her gunboats down the Chinese coast during the Opium Wars, bombarding the Qing Dynasty into accepting the Unequals Treaties, forcibly opening Chinese markets to voracious British capital and opium. Shortly after, Siam, unwilling to go through the hell unleashed on China, capitulated to a similar treaty, which ensured the de facto colonization of Bangkok and other major ports by the British, as well as laying the groundwork for the development of capitalism in the kingdom. Jit Pumisak famously described the arrangement as semi-feudal and semi-colonial. We amble around the fort. It's hot. There's little shade. A clutch of mangrove forest hangs off the north edge of the island. The tree roots drifting in the dirty water. British cannons from the Ellswick Ordnance Company lie preserved. A gift from the Imperial Brits to protect Bangkok from the Imperialist French. However, in 1883, when the French sailed down the Chao Phya into Bangkok, the guns failed to perform. Ironically, the defences were under the command of Farang officers who couldn't communicate with the Siamese. The French gunships pointed their cannons at the royal palace, a shrewd negotiation tactic. It was under this duress that what is today Laos was taken from Siam. The fort, while disused, is still a navy installation. A line of naval flags flutter along the pier. They still bear the same white elephant of the flag of Siam. Once it was supposed to protect the nation from extractive imperialism. Today it watches on helplessly as goods are shipped out to international market. There's nothing else to do. There's nobody else here. As we leave the spot, a couple of wide-winged fruit bats emerge from the mangrove forest. By the time we make it back to the ferry, the sky is filled with them, hundreds silently gliding through the air. I ask the ferry attendant if this happens every day. Kapom, yes sir. They go out to find food at night, then they go home to the forest to sleep for the day. At least the fort is good for something. My doctor friend from Salaburi is living in rural Suratani in southern Thailand. He works in a kind of company town, where the seafood and palm oil processing plants dominate everyday life. He lives in a house on the hospital grounds. We're close, we call once a week. Every Thursday I hear the horror stories from the hospital wards. During the Covid pandemic, the understaffed hospital was overrun. He describes the containment rooms as looking like Holocaust gas chambers. He routinely works over 100 hours per week. After shifts, he can still hear the nurses on the ward calling out the patient names. The local seafood and palm oil processing plants make for dirty and dangerous work. 
the wounded show up in the A&E daily. Some are from Isan, most are from Burma. One patient has lost a finger to the machinery. He comes in with a blooded finger on ice. My friend says he can reattach it, as is state policy, but the senior doctor tells him not in this hospital. Reattachment requires extensive follow-up care, physiotherapy and a thorough cleaning regime. The worker will be back on the factory floor in a day or two. Improper care could worsen the situation. He could end up losing the whole hand. He leaves with one finger less than he came in with. Every day, the freshly wounded come in, their flesh maimed in the pursuit of labour extraction, the collateral damage of capital. The government hospital, taxpayer-funded, plugs the bleeding and tapes up their wounds, safely disposes of the finger and sends the repaired machines back to the factory. Over the years, I make a few more trips to the Mei Hong Son camp. You end up hearing a lot of stories, a lot of rumours. It's a transitory place. People disappear without explanation all the time. The Thai state exists as this intimidating, overriding presence on one side, while the generational aggressor, the Burmese military, awaits them on the other. I've heard a few stories, local conspiracy theories confidently told of Thai government doctors performing forced sterilization of refugee women at the local hospitals. I asked my doctor friend in Surat about the sterilization rumors. Absolutely true, he tells me without hesitation. I'm shocked at his confidence. He says it's just a rumor as well, but a well-founded one that the local doctors perceive it as a necessary act of medicine. Pregnancies in the camp create health issues. Besides, those women have too many kids anyway. It's in their best interest. It's all done by the book, of course. Hospital bureaucrats draw up the necessary legal papers. The patients sign them. No matter that they can't retie, their signature is all that counts. I'm horrified. So is my friend but he's seen so deep into the biopolitical hell of Thailand that the horror hardly registers on his face. I ask him if he thinks it happens at his hospital in Surat since it has so many Burmese migrant workers. No, I'm sure it doesn't, he tells me. Because we don't have the facilities. If we did, who knows? Thank you.